0: I want you to think about the communion celebration we've just had as one long, elaborate, amplified analogy to introduce my sermon this morning. Through this supper that we celebrate regularly together, our life gets oriented by the death and resurrection of Jesus for us. That's the point of it. The source of our hope for then shapes our life now. In this, Paul is as good a model as I know of. In, in the story that I just read to you guys in Acts chapter 20, the story, the larger story we've been tracking with throughout the book of Acts takes a dark and a heavy turn. It's a turn that mirrors the story of Jesus in each of the four Gospels. A turn that, 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 that sees Jesus, for example, turning away from this wide field of ministry that he'd had in Judea and Samaria and all over, healing and teaching Spending time with his friends, turning from that work to Jerusalem. From which point he marches with laser-like focus towards the death he knows is waiting for him there. The death he lived to die. He marched toward that holy city, the site of the temple, the place where God had had. God's people had made sacrifices to him for their sins for centuries where where Jesus would now make a final sacrifice once for all. In our passage today, the story of Acts and Paul's life story takes the same turn. We've been seeing Paul wandering all over the place, doing healings and miracles and teaching just like Jesus did. And just like his Savior before him, in this passage, Paul turns self-consciously, intentionally towards Jerusalem. And he marches towards Jerusalem not to give his life as some sort of sacrifice. His life, he spent teaching that Jesus' life was the only sacrifice you need. You don't need anything else from anybody else. You need Jesus. That's what he teaches. But to give his life nonetheless as a platform for other people to see who Jesus really is. To know how powerful and precious this Jesus can be. Like Jesus, he goes to Jerusalem knowing what's waiting for him there, and he's completely confident that that cost is worth paying. And this morning, as we look through the first steps that Paul takes towards Jerusalem and what will end up being his death, we get a precious look we can't do without into the source of his confidence, into the purpose that oriented his life so that we can follow Him in following Jesus as individuals and as a church in the way that God has called us to. Point one this morning comes from the beginning of chapter 20. It's a chapter that begins with Paul's departure from Ephesus, where there had been this huge riot that we looked at last week. And then taking his return trip through several cities in Macedonia and Greece where he'd been before. Coaching people up, encouraging them. He hadn't seen them in a while. He wants to make sure that they're doing well in the faith. That's what he's doing. And he's traveling alongside guys that have been converted at every step along the way in his his first first missionary journeys. Then Luke slows down. Verse 7. Luke zooms in. And Luke tells us a story of what happened one night in the city of Troas. It's a story that Luke uses to make what's by now a very familiar point in the book of Acts. But a story that he uses to drive that point home in an absolutely unforgettable way. Point one this morning from story number one this morning is that Jesus is a savior who can raise the dead. Jesus is a savior who can raise the dead. The story of Eutychus begins as a comedy. It happens on the first day of the week. The Christians in the town of Troas are gathered together with the church. The day before Paul was set to leave for the next stop, Paul has a lot that he wants to say. Luke really, really, really wants you to know that Paul had a lot to say. He makes several references to it. I think he's meaning for us to chuckle a little bit. Paul prolonged his speech until midnight, Luke tells us. That's a long sermon. I mean, they wouldn't have met at 10.30 in the morning like we do. The first day of the week was a work day for them. This was There was no blue laws back then saying businesses had to shut down. This was just another day. So they had to meet in the evening. But, but still, even more reason to maybe call it quits at I don't know, nine or ten, these people are tired. But Paul goes on. It's dark. It's late. Later on, Luke says, Paul talks still longer. And that's where we enter the young man named Eutychus. His name means something like lucky. For some reason, that cracks me up. I don't know why he's a young man we're told which given the word that's used here means he would have been around a middle school age no more than 14, maybe younger than 14 and it's late it's nearly midnight he probably had work to do that day it's so warm and so cozy up in that upper room, all those lamps are burning off their oil and the poor kid is fighting hard I mean, but he can only fight for so long and who among us hasn't been in poor Eutychus' position you know You know you're supposed to be awake. You don't want to be so drowsy. But it's like a launch sequence. You know, once it started, it's just there's almost no no holding back. Down, 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 he sinks into sleep. Not able to get up and move around. No chance to splash some water on his face. You don't know when this sermon's going to be over. The speaker just keeps going longer and still longer. How much encouragement for us, for all you kids out there especially, Whoever fallen asleep or been distracted in a sermon. And if Eutychus couldn't even stay awake when the Apostle Paul was preaching to him, you can't be blamed for falling asleep on me. I don't blame you. How much encouragement for us preachers from knowing that even the Apostle Paul couldn't keep the room awake the whole time. (laughs) Now, just as we're starting to chuckle our way through this story, the story itself takes another turn, a dark and tragic turn. Young Eutychus can't fight back sleep any longer. His brain's too foggy, his eyes are too heavy, his preacher's too long-winded. And gradually, bit by bit, Luke says, he sank into a deep sleep he couldn't resist. And overcome by sleep, he fell. Not off his chair, not out of his pew, but out of a third-story window onto the hard ground beneath. With a simple, unadorned, stark statement, Luke tells us what happened. He fell down. He was taken up dead. He really died. That's what this physician means to say. There's nothing funny about that twist. You know, as comical as the story starts out, we could be tempted to see this falling episode as something that might happen in a cartoon, you know? I mean, it's, it's Wile E. Coyote hitting the ground off of the cliff with a little poof of smoke that makes the whole thing funny. It's physical comedy. That's not what's happening here. This is real world. This is drama, not cartoon. Imagine all of these people as human. Imagine it's one of us, one of our children, are middle schoolers sitting all over this room. Imagine one of them falling from that balcony in the middle of a gathering just like this one. What would we feel? What would we do? With a mad dash, screaming and crying, surely the worst moment we'd been through, that's, what we would, that's how we would react. No wonder Paul went straight down to the boy and grabbed him up into his arms. He, he loves this boy. He cares for this boy. This life is precious to him. But he's not, when Paul gets to him, he's not holding him in grief. He's holding him in power. He bends over the boy, takes him up into his arms. And when he does, this boy's life is restored. Do not be alarmed, Paul says. His life is in him. That doesn't mean he was, he was just hurt. He wasn't dead. It means he was dead And now he's alive again. Like Jesus before him, standing at the bedside of a little girl or the graveside of his friend Lazarus, Paul brings life to the dead. Now what's just happened here? Why tell this story here? Not so that we would worship Paul or stand in awe of him. You remember what happened before? Those of you who've been with us through this series, there was another time where Paul was doing amazing miracles and people rushed to him and started to worship him. They thought it was his power that did them. They call him Zeus and Hermes, he and Barnabas. They, start to make, they want to make sacrifices to them. And Paul and Barnabas rush out to them and say, no, no, we're just human, just like you. We didn't do this. It's the name of Jesus that brought the power that did this work. The same thing is meant to be read here. It's Jesus whose power has raised this dead boy through Paul. What Paul does here points to the risen Jesus who works through him. And that means the point of this story is the point of Paul's message. In chapter after chapter, in sermon after sermon, wherever we've seen him preaching, what is he built to? Jesus was dead, but now he lives. And he's still working. And the power that gave new life to his body can give new life to yours if you'll trust in him. That this is the main point I think comes through in a more subtle way in the final details of this section of the story. Paul goes up, breaks bread, and eats. I don't know about you, but at first reading that seems a little anticlimactic this dead boy is now alive again and you just go up and have your dinner? And, in, and one of these words does specifically refer to a fellowship meal that would have been common at gatherings of the local churches. But, but some commentary, commentaries see in the first word used here, the broken bread word, a reference not just to a normal meal, but to the celebration of communion. Can you imagine what it would be like to celebrate the meal of solidarity the meal of hope for the future the foretaste of the wedding supper of the lamb the the forecast of a day when he comes to do, do away with sorrow and sickness and death forever celebrate that meal in the presence of a dead child who'd just been raised to life that's a way to end a worship gathering Paul's savior Jesus is a savior that can raise the dead That's what this first story shows us. And it sets us up for point number two. A savior who can raise the dead. This is point number two. A savior who can raise the dead is a savior worth dying for. Jesus is a Savior who can raise the dead, and a Savior who can raise the dead is a Savior worth dying for. Paul leaves the town of Troas after several more stops on his way back to Jerusalem, most of them up and down the Aegean coast of modern-day Turkey. He chooses not to stop in Ephesus. He had a lot of friends there, probably would have been a prolonged stay. He wouldn't have been able to get away. He doesn't want to invest that time. He needs to get to Jerusalem in time for Pentecost. So he stops nearby to Ephesus, Luke tells us. This is in verses 13 to 16. And he calls for his friends, the elders of the church of Ephesus, to come to him at Miletus so that he can speak to them. And at this point, we, in, we enter into a speech that's one of the most beautiful in the book of Acts. A moment full of emotion and pathos. It's a moment that we'll spend all of next week looking at as Paul gives his final words, his kind of last will and testament to those that he'd served with in Ephesus But I want to introduce you to the first bit of this talk today because I think it connects so well to what we've just seen in the story of Eutychus. For now, look with me at how Paul sums up his way of life in Ephesus for the years that he was there. He begins speaking to his friends in verse 18. You yourselves know how I lived among you from the whole time, from the first day that I set foot in Asia. And here he goes. He's going to describe it. And what you're going to see, friends, as we walk through this description, is that from beginning to end, Paul was a man who lived choosing death. He intentionally, purposefully chose to die daily. Look with me. He came to them in humility, verse 19. Philippians 2 tells us what he has in mind when he talks about humility. He considered them to be more important than him. That is death. He put their interests above his own interests. That's a death to self. He set aside ambition and conceit and he humbled himself. He chose in humility to die. He came to them with tears, Luke says, verse 19. Their spiritual health was a burden that he chose to carry. It was a stress he chose to bring into his life. He wasn't some sort of traveling salesman just moving on from door to door, hoping to find more customers as fast as he could. He was a shepherd. He was almost like a father to them, deeply invested in their good. And that cost him sleep. Not to mention time and comfort. He came in tears. He died to himself to be their shepherd. And he came with trials, verse 19. Over and over again, his ministry provoked intense hatred and opposition. And still, he says, I proclaim Jesus day in, day out. I didn't shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public from house to house. That's verse 19 and 20. What kind of life is this? Friends, if that sounds like death to you, then Paul would probably say, yes, bingo, right answer. It is death. And this is just the beginning because this walk down memory lane is leading to what's coming next. Look at verse 22. You know how I lived among you, with humility and tears and trials, and now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Now we go from bad to worse, constrained by the Spirit. I know I have to go, don't really know what's going to happen, except that. And this is a big except. The Holy Spirit testifies me in every stop about the imprisonment and the afflictions that are waiting for me. Paul doesn't know exactly what's going to happen when he gets to Jerusalem, but he doesn't know what's going to happen in the way that that one of the soldiers on D-Day, on those landing craft, didn't know what was going to happen when they got to Omaha Beach. When that that door comes down into a ramp, they can hear the mortars. They can hear the bullets bouncing off the landing craft. They can hear the screams of the men who've gone before them. They know what's going to happen. They don't know, but they know. And so does Paul. So Paul, like his Savior before him, he marches to Jerusalem to die. Why? Verse 24 gives his answer. His life isn't precious to him. Jesus is. I don't account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course. Because a Savior who can raise the dead... Is a Savior worth dying for? Do you remember how many of the crowds responded to the powerful miracles Paul has already done? Many in the crowds, when they saw the miracles being done, they wanted that power in their life for their purposes. They came to Paul or Barnabas or whoever trying to get them to aim this power they had at their agenda for life. But not Paul. It's not like Paul experiences what happened with Eutychus and thinks to himself, hey, a savior who can raise the dead, that's a savior who can make all my wildest dreams come true. That would be a pagan response, and Paul is a Christian. This world is everything to his pagan neighbors. Their goal is to make the most of life for as long as it lasts, to to stretch it out as long as they can stretch it, and to squeeze as much as they can out of it along the way. But Paul's response is to say, look what happened to Eutychus. Do you see what this means? I can lose everything in this world, and my Savior can give me life again at the end of it. I have literally nothing to lose because this Savior can raise the dead. I can lose life itself and still know him and know the power of his resurrection. His life in ministry here in Ephesus is just like an enacted parable illustrating what he wrote about in Philippians. In Philippians chapter 3, he says, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And here's what at the end of it all. I count everything as loss and have suffered the loss of all things that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Friends, how much of our time and energy are we tempted to spend day in and day out doing our best to avoid deaths large and small? Driven by fear of what we might lose or what we might miss out on or what we might have to go through if we're not careful enough. We don't have to live that way. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that Jesus took on a body just like ours and died a death like the one we will die so that he could defeat the power of death itself. And through that, this is a quote from Hebrews 2, deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Slavery. That's the word for it. For living life as if the main goal is to avoid death in every way and for as long as possible. Paul is free from that, and you can be too. If you're not yet a Christian this morning, maybe what you've seen of Paul's life so far seems like a major turnoff. I mean, I get it's not really much of a sales pitch, certainly not for 21st century America. But for another angle, let me ask you this. If you look not so much at all that Paul, it cost Paul to be with Jesus not so much at all that he had to give up, if you look at the fact that he was so eager and willing to, what does that tell you about what he's found? Let me ask it a different way. Can you, friend, can you face death like Paul does? Have you got something in your life worth dying for, something that precious? something that's not losable no matter what happens to you? Do you have something like that? You may not want what Paul went through, and you may not have to fear the kind of martyrdom that Paul would soon experience. But one way or another, friend, you are going to die. That's going to happen. It's happened to everyone before you. You won't be the exception. Can you face that? Do you have something that death can't take from you like Paul does? And in the meantime, even if you've got decades left to live, you will suffer in this broken world. I don't know how, but but you will, as Paul did. Do you have any source of strength, any stability that you can cling to that your suffering won't destroy? You could have that, and you could find it where Paul has we're confident about that. That we as Christians have turned to Jesus because he's a savior who can raise the dead. That's what we're looking to him for. And we're confident, friends, ultimately, we're confident not because of what we read about Eutychus right here, as, as interesting as that is. We're mostly confident because of what happened to Jesus himself. He really died. There's strong historical evidence for that. And he really rose. There's strong historical evidence for that. And any savior who has died and risen again is a savior who can raise the dead. He's a savior worth dying for. And he could be yours too if you'll have him. My Christian friends, I I get that Jesus may not call you to martyrdom. Oh, I, I pray that he doesn't. But he does call you to a cross every day, to a humility that says no to the endless scramble to make what you can of life. And to instead put the interests of others first. He calls you to tears, like Paul's tears, tears that come come from entering the pain of other people, pain that's not yours, pain that, that makes your life less pleasant, pain that brings inconvenience and stress that you could choose to live without if you want to. Jesus calls you to that. He calls you to trials to sometimes willingly choose, choose to, to enter them and to sometimes just live through them as they're brought to you by the hand of providence. The call to discipleship, it's just really clear in the New Testament. The call to discipleship is a call to face death for Jesus' sake, deaths small and possibly deaths large. And we have to put our focus where Paul's is, not on what faith costs us, but on what faith gains for us. A living Savior who gives life to the dead. He's worth it. We can trust Him with whatever we may lose. We can trust Him to redeem whatever deaths we may die in obedience to Him. And that, friends, that point sets up the place I want to close this morning. Point number three this morning is that a Savior worth dying for is a Savior worth living for. Jesus is a savior who gives life to the dead we saw that in eutychus paul knew what to do with that kind of power not aim it at his own agenda for his life but sell out his life to serve this power it was a savior worth dying for for him but thirdly a savior worth dying for is a savior worth living for I love that Paul's confidence in Jesus doesn't work like an insurance policy for him, like life insurance. You know, a comfort that helps you sleep better at night. You know you're covered in the event of death so you can go about living your life stress-free. He doesn't, he doesn't live like that with, with what he has in Christ. It's not an insurance policy for him. The fact that, that Christ has conquered death is the centerpiece of his life now and in the meantime. Look back with me to verse 24. His single compelling focus, his one consuming desire Knowing that death is no threat. Knowing that what he loves most he can't possibly lose. His single desire, verse 24, is to finish the course. If only I may finish my course. That's all that matters. And the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's what he lives for. To testify to the gospel. That's his hope and his peace and his life in the midst of death. One of my favorite moments in the uh, Band of Brothers TV miniseries about World War II, about a a company and and what it went through in the the European theater of the war. One of my favorite moments in this series is this moment when a private confesses to a sergeant that he spent D-Day hiding in a ditch, not fighting. He's too terrified to join the battle. He couldn't get out of there. He was just frozen by fear. And this battle-hardened, wizened old sergeant said this to encourage him. You hid in that ditch because you think there's still hope. But Blythe, that's the name of the private, the only hope you have is to accept the fact that you're already dead. And the sooner you accept that, the sooner you'll be able to function as a soldier is supposed to function. I don't know how encouraging that is, to be honest, (laughs) but he's got a point. Maybe not very encouraging, but, but he's got a point. This private hunkered down in that ditch was immobilized by fear. He was immobilized because he thought he had too much to lose to get out of the ditch and go do what was asked of him. He's clinging to life in his fear. And the sergeant comes by and says to him, basically, you can't hold on to what you're so afraid to lose. This is the key to being a good soldier. Paul gets the message He's up out of that foxhole. He's not hunkered down in any kind of ditch. He's not clinging for dear life to life and all that this world has to offer. And that has set him free to go about his life for something totally different, for a work that that we're still benefiting from even now today. Only he's not just resigned like this sergeant was. So you know what? I'm going to die anyway, so may as well get on with it. May as well not resist it. That's not what Paul has at all. He's liberated not by despair, but by hope. Christ raised Eutychus from the dead. I saw it. It happened through my own hands. My death is not going to be a problem for him. He can handle that. He'll know how to redeem it. Paul has nothing to fear, so now he's free not to spend his life overcoming death as if he could, but testifying to the gospel of the grace of God. Somebody compared Paul uh, and his gospel focus to one of those old school plastic punching bags that I grew up with. You know, they're inflatable. And at the very bottom, they got this heavy set of of beans that kind of keep them oriented. And you you smack them around and they go down, but they always pop right back up and you smack it again and it goes down and pops right back up. And that's kind of Paul. He's always popping up with gospel testimony. So I had to put you first when I came here. Boom. That gave me a chance to testify to the gospel of grace of God. I'm so thankful. Thank you for giving me that chance. It hurt me to have to bear with you. I had to cry a lot. But you know what? In the middle of those tears, I got the chance to testify to the grace of God. The trials of the Jews, they were hard to deal with. Got stoned, beaten, imprisoned. Boom, boom, boom. And every time he pops up testifying. To the gospel of the grace of God. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to do that. I wouldn't have had that chance had you not thrown me into prison. And now he faces Jerusalem. What will he do before Caesar himself when the executioner approaches? Well, Paul will be doing the same thing he's been doing all the way up till now he'll testify to the gospel of the grace of God. We're going to be seeing that for ourselves in the rest of Acts. You can't keep this man down because a savior worth dying for is a savior worth living for in the meantime. It's easy for us to think in a moment of truth we'd be willing to give everything for Jesus, but but friends, the test of whether we would be willing to die for him is whether we're willing to live for him now like Paul was. That's the test. That's where you can tell. What is Paul's purpose to you? Where does his purpose show up in your life? Let me push this one step further with an example that's really weighing on me at this stage in my life. Some of you will be able to relate to this better than others, but I hope there's something in it that everybody can take from. Those of you who are parents in here this morning, I... I wonder, what would your kids say you're living for if you asked them? Right, let me ask you this. What, what do you think your kids would say you'd want them to live for if, you asked, if they asked you? The older my kids get, the more I'm feeling the pull of all these things we could be doing for them, all these doors that could be open for them if we just claim the right opportunities and get them the right training. I've noticed just how easy and quickly we can justify really what amounts to a this-worldly paganism when it comes in the garb of family first. It's all for the kids. For all the frenetic pace and maximized opportunities and relentless activity and the money invested viewed from another angle, what we sink into all these opportunities Aren't we just that private huddled down in the foxhole, too afraid of what we might lose? Too afraid that we or our kids might miss out on something this world has to offer? When, friends, this world is passing away. It isn't going to last. Don't we want them to know that? Let's give our kids something more to live for, a treasure more precious than gold which passes away. How quickly... In that rat race of maximizing what our kids have to offer in this world, what they can enjoy, could our church involvement get boiled down to just brief attendance on a Sunday once a week? Don't we want them to see that this, this, we are central to life as a Christian? That what happens here matters more than what happens out there. That this is what we are worth prioritizing. Don't we want to teach our children to say no to good things sometimes so that we can say yes to the best things? This is one reason I've just been so, so grateful for the Sunday evening service that we've had for the last three weeks. It's a new thing we started out in the life of our church. We gather again here for one hour to just sing together together testifying through our songs to the gospel of the grace of God, pray together that the testimony to the gospel of the grace of God will go out from us here, but also all around the world, and to hear together testimony to the gospel of the grace of God showing up in real life. I mean, it, it's tough to get back out again on a Sunday. I get that, but I, I've just been so encouraged that my kids are sitting here hearing our sister Rebecca Cowell last week talk for 10 minutes about what God did to bring her through things that seemed like they would have killed her. How he was there for her when she was suffering. How she learned of him and came to trust him more deeply because his gospel was enough to get her through. My boys heard that. We got to talk about that later in the week. You know, the things we pray about here in Sunday evenings, we're taking those into our mealtime prayers together sometimes. We're praying for our missionaries. We're praying for other ministry partners. We're praying for the needs of our own church. And, and, and in just little subtle ways, that time is trickling out into our lives, helping us to have our kids more anchored to what's going on here as the real action in the world. And this is gonna look very different for every family in every different situation. It's gonna look different for those of you who don't have children, those of you who are single. Ultimately, what you do with the time that you have is between you and your Savior who gave everything for you. I don't pretend to know what you should do with your schedule But let's work and pray towards this. Let's at least agree on this together, guys. Let's work and pray toward a culture where all of us are regularly saying no to good things so that we can say yes to the best thing. Let's let's work together to to add to our decision making not just coasting into every expected opportunity as if we're obliged to to fulfill them, but to ask of it in our decision-making, is this thing that I might do, that I'm free to do as a Christian, that wouldn't be sinful to do, is this thing that I might do more or less likely to give me an opportunity to testify to the gospel of the grace of God? Is this good thing more or less likely to set me up for the main thing? That question doesn't answer itself. You may answer it in all sorts of different ways that honor God, but it honors him to ask and is faithful to the message we've just seen in the example of Paul. Because friends, a savior worth dying for is a savior worth living for. Right now, every day. Let's pray to him for the help to honor him in our lives. Father, we do pray. By your power, the power of your Spirit, you would continue to renovate us, so that we reflect the selfishness that comes so naturally, even less and less and less, and the selflessness that comes from from the power of Christ, more and more and more, and more than just selflessness, more than just sacrifice for sacrifice's sake. We pray that you would help us to testify with joy to the richness and preciousness of the gospel you have given to us by prioritizing it wherever we can. Would you give us wisdom to know how to do that and to balance the many other commitments and responsibilities you've given us? Would you give us charity towards one another as we make these choices differently from one another, but also friendships where it's safe to ask each other about choices like this without fear? Would you give us a community built around the preciousness of Jesus and the hope that he can give life to the dead. And we pray that you would do this for your name's sake. Amen.